I always tell people when they ask for advice about, you know, starting a podcast or, or something. Right. I always say, you know, talk about the thing that you would talk about anyway. Mm, yeah. You know, it, it because doing something calculated to try to fit a niche or, or to try to, you know, manufacture an audience about something, that is never going to last. And it's never going to feel authentic. And wow. authenticity is the currency of the internet. Happy New Year, all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. Mine involved moving, so in the days leading up to Christmas, we were up to our chins and elbows in boxes. Not the way I wanted to spend most of my Christmas season. We're still unpacking boxes and getting settled in, so I'm hoping the podcast schedule won't be too far put off. As you know, it takes a bit of time to put our main episodes together. The next regular show is scheduled for next Tuesday, but we'll have to wait and see how things go. There's so much to share. Uh, there's an update on my Little Mix Sunshine film, uh, a great conversation with Patrick Moreau of Still Motion, and a look at how an artist deals with the difference between what's in his head and what can actually be realized. Ugh, it's like the bane of my existence, but I'm sure that's just me. None of you guys deal with anything like that, I'm sure. Anyway, until then, I don't want to leave you hanging, so we have a couple of bonus episodes to hold you over. This week, we have my full, uncut interview with the one, the only, Jeff Kanata. He's co-host and co-creator of the comedy podcast about science, We Have Concerns, which was named one of iTunes' best of 2014. He's an actor, a husband, but more importantly, as far as it relates to this show, Jeff is one of three co-hosts of the popular movie review podcast, The Slash Filmcast, easily one of my faves. Started probably eight or so years ago by David Chen and Davinja Hardwar, the show's kind of like late-night film geek conversations you'd have. Uh, David, the main host, is sort of like the heart of the show. I think of Davindra, who also writes for Engadget, as the head of the show. And Jeff? I'd call Jeff the soul. He's passionate about film and art in general, and it shows. He speaks with such emotion and vigor. It was a huge honor to have him for Radio Film School, and the few excerpts of his I've used have all been poignant and powerful. You heard him in last week's Animation Shortens episode, waxing eloquent about Pixar and their marvelous film Inside Out. Jeff also is one of those people who refuses to watch movie trailers. He calls himself unsullied. I even think he was able to get through all of 2015 without any kind of exposure to a Star Wars trailer or commercial. There's nothing more enjoyable to him than going into a movie knowing absolutely nothing. An unsullied life is not for everyone. Heck, I would say it's not for most people. But when you hear him talk about it, he makes a compelling case. Bottom line, Jeff is an all-around great guy and an awesome podcast guest. I have no doubt you'll love this full, uncut interview with him as we discuss Pixar, storytelling, comedy, Bill Cosby, filmmaking, and more. Remember, if you want to keep updated on new episode releases, you can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. And if you want to get other exclusive bonus episodes, as well as resources to help you grow in your craft and career, consider becoming a DareDreamerFM member for the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's it for now, so without further ado, here's my interview with Jeff Kanata. That's spelled with two N's and one T. Enjoy. 
Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, cool. And uh, I was just looking at your conversation with Corey Garrett regarding the whole Bill Cosby thing. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like the whole idea of the... And I tweeted a blog post to you guys that I written about this topic a few years ago about the idea of the, like the uh, the sins of the can the artist be separated from his sins? Like, mm-hmm. can we appreciate a piece of art even if we know that the artist is a douchebag or right. is someone who has done something really really terrible? You know, like a Woody Allen or or a Roman Polanski, like Corey brought up, and. I, and it's tough. I mean, I think in your tweet you were saying how it's hard to like how you grew up loving Cosby and his stand up, particularly for you as a comedian, mm-hmm. and how now with all the allegations that are going on, it's kind of hard to kind of share those memories with your kid. Yeah, which I can understand. And I think one of the points I was making, and Corey was saying how, well, what about people like Alan and Polanski who have terrible things? And I think there's a difference there though, because like their art, one is not them. Like with you know, like with Cosby, it's his stand-up is him. Like it's him telling stories about, mm-hmm. about all, his childhood, about yeah. his childhood, and about all those kind of things. And so, you know, it's not quite the same thing if we're watching a movie by Roman Polanski or we're watching, you know, I mean, even though Woody Allen is in his movies, it's there's still that separation of the story versus the person enough in a film versus a stand-up comedian. I don't know. I agree. Uh, I think, you know, you've hit on two of my favorite artists in the world. I'm a huge Woody Allen fan and mm. a huge Bill Cosby fan. And, yeah. and it's very difficult for me to reconcile uh, both of their acts. I yeah. would make a distinction between a a man who seems to have a systemic and constant over multiple decades track record of, of being a serial rapist with 40 plus women coming forward and God knows how many more sure. not coming forward. Uh, and then Woody Allen having, you know, one allegation against mm-hmm. him, uh, you know, I, that's a good I, point. Yeah. I think those are different things. I think, uh, you know, if, if Woody Allen's allegation is true, it's equally as despicable, but I, I think there's more room for, um, doubt there as to whether or not that, that has happened. And, and, right, you know, right. uh, I don't think there's any doubt about Cosby at this point, but, um, you know, I struggle with both of them, to be honest with you. Cosby even more so because the experience of listening to those co- comedy albums when I was a kid with my dad is something I cherish. It That experience has not been tarnished. I, I still look back on those fondly. I still think they're very funny and wonderful pieces of art um, that influenced my comedic sensibilities tremendously. But I hesitate now. I, I had always imagined that I would inherit those albums, those old – vinyl albums that my dad had from the 60s and 70s and I would play them for my kids uh, when they were about the age that I embraced them which is pretty young you know yeah. six seven eight years old I was listening to those over and over I mean I can I can quote most of them um, <laughs> I listen to them a lot and I, I they're very wholesome um, wonderful pieces of comedy that they are, they are, you know, something you can share with a young kid. I would never sit down and watch a Woody Allen movie with, with a six or seven year old. Right. Right. So it also sits in a different place there too. Right. Because you can't really, unless it's ants. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that I wouldn't really call that a Woody Allen movie, but uh, I'll grant you. Right. Um, 
but you know it's 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 a different thing where you know you can have an adult conversation with someone who's kind of looking at Woody Allen's oeuvre, but I don't I wouldn't sit down with a seven year old and explain that this is a bad man, and I, I just don't want to have that conversation. So right, I struggle with it. It's it's really personal for me and really sad. Yeah, yeah, it is hard. I remember years ago I was watching or I was either watching or listening to Howard Stern, and he had Mia Farrow on. Mia Farrow on, Mia Farrow on the show, and I think it was shortly after the whole thing with their adopted daughter, or whatnot, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just remember Howard. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was like taking this really hard stance about about Willity and really su- supporting Mia, and I don't remember him saying like he wasn't going to watch Woody Allen movie anymore or whatnot. But I remember at the time because this was relatively early in my uh i guess career as a filmmaker was i wasn't really doing it professionally yet back then but it was early in my education as a filmmaker and you know one of my, one of the whenever people ask me what my favorite movies are i don't really have a favorite movie I, I always give them like the five movies that i think have influenced my style the most um and manhattan is one of them and so yeah, having uh having uh all that happen i remember you know being in my early 20s at the time struggling with that conflict of uh you know he did this kind of creepy thing but his work is so good and but i i like when i wrote about this the conclusion i came to is that and each person has to kind of like make their own choice but the conclusion i came to was that we all have terrible things maybe not as bad as obviously what cosby is being accused of doing but like no one is an angel no one is perfect, and if we were to, I don't know, to to like completely hold against an artist all the bad things they've done, like we would n- never appreciate any art. I, know, I your, think that's your take on that. There's some truth to that. I okay. think. Um, I, mean, I I struggle because uh, at the same time I don't want to laud people and give them a free pass just because they've created something beautiful, right? Sure, you don't. Sure. You know, I think that we do that with sports stars as well. They, they yeah. get a free pass because they make our, our favorite team win. Right. Um, and you know, it's a problem across the board with any kind of, um, cultural value we put in somebody. It, it tends to change the rules as to what's acceptable. And I, I struggle right. with that, right? I don't want that to be the case. I don't want to reward someone just because they've created something beautiful uh, allowing them to to live a life that is despicable right. uh, and that is predatory. I think that is even the worst thing. Is in yeah. both of these cases, the allegations are so predatory and so evil. Um, so you know, especially in Cosby's case, right? That it's right, just right. it's just evil. And um, man, I, I I have a hard time with. It. I I still think you know. I still think the things he created are wonderful. Mm-hmm. I still think those comedy albums are wonderful. But I I don't know if I will have them be a generational touchstone yeah. like I like I had planned. Yeah. And I think the point you made is also an excellent one. The idea of is your patronage of that particular artist going to continue to give them a livelihood that you probably don't want to give them, you know. Right. So yeah, it's 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 a topic that's kind of hard and different and, you know, each person has to come to it based on their own personal morals and convictions. But you mentioning Cosby as someone who's influenced you, you know, this journey that I'm on with, you know, with all these different filmmakers and artists that I'm talking to, I'm like exploring this idea of like what it means to have uh, uh, finding your voice and 
you know, this developing a signature style. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's primarily geared towards, you know, filmmakers. And But I think the whole idea and the concept transcends the genre, right? It transcends filmmaking. You sure. know, you can talk to musicians. You can talk to photographers. You can talk to other artists about, okay, how did you become the person you are? How did you become the artist you are? And, you know, I, knowing you're an actor and a comedian and hearing, you know, Cosby being an influence on you, what other artists, you know, have influenced the kind of work that you do and, and why? I'm, I'm, I have uh, tried to be throughout my life as much of a sponge as possible. And I think that's, that's one of the best ways to contribute is to sort of know what's out there and to suck up as much, as many influences as, as possible. So, I mean, I think mine, my tapestry is varied and abundant with, with lots of things. Um, one of the things, you know, my father was as evidenced by sharing the comedy albums with me, the Cosby albums, uh, he was a big fan of comedy when I was a kid. And we, many of my favorite memories as a very young person were listening to comedy bits. I mean, my dad would tape, I mean, this is the real tape, like VHS tape, um, you know, Carson and Leno and the late night shows for the stand-up comedian bits. And he would keep them and we'd go back to them over and over and we would watch great stand-up comedians. I mean, I can quote verbatim several obscure comedy bits like uh, there's an a whitney brown bit that was a favorite of my father's that we listened to over and over a whitney brown was on saturday night live for a while and is kind of a, a lesser known stand-up but really funny and um you know my dad loved the early stand-up of uh, tim allen we the men are pigs hour special on hbo yeah. we watched over and over and over again um so the you know these are seeing my dad laugh and and um Laughing alongside him, I think, was always a a huge part of of the joy of my childhood. So I think that it it engendered a love of comedy and and a love of he wasn't you know he wasn't playing me Carlin and Pryor you know he wasn't playing me this real R rated stuff. It was right. it was wholesome stuff, but it was still genuinely funny and and well crafted. And um, so from a comedic standpoint, I, I you know I was always very much influenced by a love of stand up comedy and a love of of great storytelling in general. I mean, my dad also to this day loves a great, just well-crafted joke, you know, a well-crafted story. You know, he'll email me these things that are sent around the web that are just, you know, just a guy walks into a bar type jokes. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, so it's, you know, they're very much dad jokes, but, but that's (laughs) what I love too. Um, and then from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, I, I worked, uh, at a movie theater. It was, sort of the second job I ever had and I had it for a long time in high school and it was really a more than just a, a job for me. It was a community of, of people that I really found a home with. Uh, I loved working at that job. It felt like it was this – it was a cool place to be and I had never really been cool before. Um, I'd very much been a nerd growing up and and socially awkward and and kind of retreated into the fiction of my – of my imagination, you know, with the love of comic books and genre novels and stuff like that. And I was very much an introvert that way. But, um, my, my junior year of, ho- of high school, I got this job at a movie theater and then, you know, that was married with this. I already had a love of films. I, I, you know, was a, a child of the star Wars generation that uh, grew up 
imagining. Yeah, you know, I I have I have a, a book that uh, we all had to had to compose when we were in preschool that said, you know, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite color? Who, you know, who's your imaginary friend? All these silly questions for right. kindergartners. And it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I just found it actually just a couple of years ago. I took a picture on my iPhone of it. Um, it was in the attic at my dad's house. And uh, I had said what I wanted to be when I grew up is a director, a movie director, huh. because I had asked my parents, who's responsible for Star Wars? And they said, George Lucas. And I said, what does George Lucas do? And they said, he's the director. And I said, that's what I want to do <laughs> because <laughs> I want to be the guy that makes Star Wars, right? Um, and it was later that I that, that morphed into wanting to work in special effects and then later still uh, wanting to actually be in front of the camera. But so I had already ha- always had this love of, of movies and that was even more galvanized by working in a movie theater and just seeing everything. And when I would have uh, you know a, a break at work, I would go into the movie theater and just see bits of movies. And and this was in the '90s when there was this wonderful independent scene, and I was at a big multiplex that had all these crazy movies. And I'm you know I'm going in and watching Pulp Fiction over and over, and I'm watching all these all these really daring, interesting, adventurous films, and and sort of um, developing a taste for things that were less mainstream and more more interesting and more daring and a little more avant-garde. And then I went to college and uh, started out as a computer science major, moved to, moved to theater and uh, befriended a, a bunch of film studies guys. And we all would watch a lot of weird, interesting, cool movies. And I would start, I started taking in a lot of theater and fell in love with stage work and theater and, and reading a lot of plays and falling in love with, uh, you know, the sort of contemporary, you know, the David Mamets and the, uh, the, um, uh, oh gosh, my brain's not working, but, uh, you know, just a whole wide range Mm -hmm. of, of, of contemporary writers. Um, so, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a big tapestry, but it, I was just trying to absorb as much as I could at that point and, and still, still like doing that, still like trying to, you know, consume as much as I can and, and understand all the different ways that, uh, art can be expressed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love hearing that story because it it kind of gives insight into because when I because I'm a fan of the work that you know you and Anthony do and we have concerns and obviously you know a big fan of Slash Filmcast and you seem to have like this eclectic taste like you bring up often you hear you bring up authors and movies and you're also on you know you know five by five DLC and doing games and so it gives insight into where this diverse interest palette of yours comes from um is part of that because you've done all these different things or did you always have kind of like an interest in a lot of different things growing up yeah i mean i think i think so i i definitely have broadened as as i've gotten older and had more interest and in, in been you know attracted to the shiny thing over in that corner <laughs> and uh, you know i i think i may have actually hurt myself professionally by not focusing on one particular thing and driving hard toward that goal, but being more concerned with a wide base of, of, of diverse interests. Right. Um, so I worry about that sometimes, but I'm just so intrigued by all kinds of different mediums and all kinds of different, um, entertainment forms. Um, so I, I just sort of follow my interests and, and they are, they are varied and they are many. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I hopefully that creates 
I think that creates a more interesting um, a voice, and and I'm certainly interested in, in having my voice out there. So hopefully that people find that interesting and compelling. Well, it's funny you talk about dad jokes, and you know, for the uh, for the people listening who may not have listened to your show yet, we have concerns. Like one of the quote unquote running jokes has been this whole dad jokes things where you tell this really corny joke, which is you call a dad joke. And I could have sworn, like on a recent episode, as of this taping, I think it was either the Electric Sheep episode or the the Robot Dogs Go to Heaven episode, like Anthony said something about like, is that like an iPhone in your pocket? Are you happy to see me or something? Does that <laughs> ring a bell? Yeah. And I was, I didn't tweet this. I meant to tweet this, but that to me sounded like a dad joke. Yeah, I think I'm I'm slowly whittling him down, and I think he's slowly, uh, you know, I'm I'm borging him, right? It, it, right, it, right. Resistance is futile. But it was funny because it was so subtle, and I like as soon as I heard it, I was like, I was waiting for you, like almost to comment on it to see if it, <laughs> uh, to see if it would come out. But uh, but one of the reasons why I bring that up is because, in some ways, that is part of the style of your show, right? Your Obviously, the banter between you two is a big part of it, but you know this aspect of it. When you guys created the show, was it was it something like you sat down and said, "Okay, this is what, this is you know we're gonna do this improv related show," or was it born out of something you guys were already doing? And you were like, "Hey, you know this would be fun to record." I mean, it almost seems maybe like a little bit of both, but like I don't know. Well, we. Anthony and I both worked for Revision 3 for several years, but uh, I was down here in Los Angeles and Anthony was based up in San Francisco. And we'd been sort of mutual admiration society for each other and had seen each other at various events where we would link up at Comic-Con or whatever. Right. And um, and every time we met up, we got along splendidly and, and always said, oh, man, it would be great to work together. It would be great to work together. And then at a certain point, uh, Anthony decided to leave Revision 3 and move to Los Angeles. And when – he had made that announcement. I reached out to him and said, oh, man, wouldn't it be great? You're going to be down here. Let's let's find a project to do together. So the impetus was let's do something, first mm. of all. Yeah. And we had talked a lot about the kinds of things we wanted to do. You know, Anthony was known uh, for video game reviews uh, originally when he did Bite Jacker. And I was known in the video game space from Totally Rad Show and now from DLC and Weekend Confirmed. So – it was natural for us to start talking initially about potentially doing a video game related show of some kind. And we talked about that. We talked about that. And we kind of developed some really, I think, really cool ideas for what that could be. And at a certain point, we both looked at each other and went, wouldn't it be – we have this opportunity to do something. This is sort of all what we've already done. Mm -hmm. And why don't we try to do something a little more daring, a little more outside the box and just see if it works. Right. And we – you know, we said, well, what what would we want to do? And both of us had loved doing comedy and wanted to create a show that was less about other people's stuff and more our own stuff. And, it, and sort of less about reviewing other pieces of art and sort of creating something that is ours, that we, we're putting out into the world. And so we came at it very organically. It, it had no real... Um, there was no real plan. We just mm -hmm. sat down and turned on uh, the recording devices. And I had read an article that really intrigued me about the Fermi paradox. And I was like, I want to talk to you about this because you're a real smart guy. About the and what? The Fermi paradox. Fermi paradox. Okay. Right, the Fermi paradox is, it says that uh, based on how big the universe is, 
it's extraordinarily improbable that we haven't already seen intelligent life in this in this universe. Right. So it's almost ridiculously impossible. Like it's it's so improbable that it borders on impossible that we don't already know of other life in this in this galaxy that's intelligent. Got it. Based on just statistically. And so there's a whole a bunch of these theories as to why that might be and none of them are very good for us. They're all very very bad. It means that likely something's coming that's going to wipe us out. Um, so anyway, I thought that was really fascinating. It was it was a really long article, and and you know he's a science guy. He's done science shows and continues to do science shows. And so I was like, let's just talk about that. And then we started talking about it, and quite naturally, we just dropped into characters and did sort of comedic bits about it. And when we were done, we were like, let's do another one of those and see if that happens again. And we recorded another one. We ended up recording three of these sort of nameless formless test trial things and they all sort of fit in to a certain format that just sort of happened and the only thing that we imposed on it and and I have to credit Anthony on this one mm-hmm. is he said no longer than 20 minutes like that's make we're making a 20 minute show I, he said I'm sick of these these uh you know overlong shows that are difficult for people to consume let's make something small something short that's easy it's bite size right and I was resistant to that at first because I'd only always worked in a long form medium and kind of liked it, but it ended up being a really great idea. And um, and so yeah, the show just sort of happened like that, and we ended up liking it so much that we just sort of put those first three out there and said, "Hey, are, are other people into this?" And we got a really great response and started to continue to make it, and then went to Patreon to fund it, and here we are. Yeah, no, it's great. And one of the things that's interesting about it, and again, I don't know if this was born naturally is like each episode starts like with you guys in mid conversation about something else. Was mm-hmm. that something that was planned or it started out unplanned and has become the thing we do. So right. uh, we, we always, you know, before we start recording, we always start talking about something else and hit the record button right. and just sort of gradually move into a conversation. So it has become the, the format, but I, it, it, it started out as not the format. We just sort of liked how that felt. Um, after we had started done it before, we 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 liked how it felt because we started talking, you know, about the things that we would start a conversation talking about the things that we were talking about, like video games and movies and stuff, and then we would be like, "Oh, let's get to the topic at hand here," uh, and then we decided just to leave that little of that in, and now it's part of the plan. Now we sit down and go, "Well, let's just start having a conversation and then move to the topic." So. Well, this is a good segue into about this whole idea of artists and inspiration and uh i remember a long time ago watching an interview with oprah and she was talking about you know when she first got started uh with her show back in 86 or whenever it was and she she was recounting how the first time when she was taking callers on and she said you know caller are you there Mm -hmm. which is something that um i forgot the name phil donahue phil donahue who was the he was the daytime talk show king at the time. He would always say that because he had people who would call in to the show. And he would say, caller, are you there? And I remember her saying that and realizing, okay, she needed to do something different. And I, I tell that story because I kind of did something similar like with – like you're an Anthony show. So my daughter and I started this podcast where we kind of talk about 
you know, we used to, we have these conversations about faith and family and philosophy ever since she was like 12 years old. And she's been seeing me like develop these podcasts. And she was like, Dad, you know, what would be a cool podcast if we recorded some of these conversations we have about like faith and God and everything. And so as we were talking about it and I like I wasn't happy with like the way it was kind of like developing. And like I found myself like kind of gravitating to doing some of the things that like you and Anthony doing your show. And mm-hmm. I think I even brought her up to her. I said, you know, this is kind of like the show that I listen to. Um, I mean, she doesn't listen to it. She wouldn't. But it was it was interesting how like that was, for lack of a better word, like rubbing off on me. And so <laughs> I wanted to uh, get your your take on that, your take on like the 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 difference between like inspiration and and plagiarism and this whole idea of like good artists borrow but great artists steal right what is your whole take on that whole on that whole topic i i tend to agree with that sentiment in the sense that you know we're all influenced by by everything at our best you know and I think great art comes from trying to live up to the standard of great art. I mm-hmm. think even the the greatest, most original people in the world, if you talk to them, they would say, oh, my gosh, if only I was as good as X, Y, or Z. Right. Um, so I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Stealing outright is, you know, can be problematic specifically in the in the comedy space, you know, stealing, stealing a specific joke or whatever. There's a lot of – there's a lot of um, – established community sentiment about that sure uh but for the most part i think we're all you know we're all in this big melting pot of ideas and uh, getting inspired is is a good thing i you know in relation to your specific story i i always tell people when they ask for advice about you know starting a podcast or or something right i always say you know Talk about the thing that you would talk about anyway, mm, yeah. you know, it, it because doing something calculated to try to fit a niche or or to try to, you know, manufacture an audience about something that is never going to last and it's never going to feel authentic. And wow. authenticity is the currency of the Internet, man. It's that's how we started the Totally Rad show back in the day. That was we were three guys that were having these conversations and we just looked at each other and went. I bet other people would be interested in these conversations. Let's make a show. And that is the thing that's going to last longer and it's the thing that people will react to positively because they sense that it's not false. It's it's actually uh it comes from a real place and it's it, there's passion and emotion and interest there. So I always think that's the best way to do it. And if that if if those real conversations come from being inspired by another work, then so be it. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that comment. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned specifically authenticity. You know, lately I've been, I mean, I've done podcasts, a, new, a couple other podcasts in the past. So, like, I've like not new to the genre, but since getting back into it, I've been studying, you know, a lot of different podcasters talking about like what makes a good podcast. And one of them specifically talks about authenticity, like really being authentic for your audience. And when I think about how that, uh, relates to filmmaking and the art and the idea of you know creating one watching something that you'd want to watch right and then which I hear a lot of filmmakers talk about mm-hmm. um, and then really being like true like to your voice like what is it that speaks to you and I kind of been discovering in this journey as I talk to different artists 
that when it comes to developing a style, like a big part of it is just that, like what, like what inherently and naturally speaks to you and being brave enough to embrace that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that is absolutely right on. You know, they say uh, specific is general. Like people will res- more people will respond to something intensely personal than something that is trying to be universal uh, because we all feel like we're the only ones feeling these things. And when you come from a place of being intensely personal, even if it isn't someone's exact experience, they can relate to the feeling that it's all yours. You know, and I, I, my favorite movies in the world are films that feel like it was made just for me. Like, I, I can't imagine anybody else would like this, but I love it. How is it that somebody else made it? Because it seems like the only thing that would exist in my world. And, and that's the most exciting stuff for me. And, and that's why I try to come at stuff. I'm not interested in, in reviewing things um, from this ob- sense of objectivity or like, you know, giving something a, it's a seven out of 10. And that's the, <laughs> the objective universal score for this thing. No, I'm in- interested in intensely personal, very specific point of view. And I want anybody listening to me review something to know where I'm coming from on it, what what brought me to that place and how I feel. And and they, if they know me well enough, they'll know whether that applies to them or not. And yeah. I think it's much more useful information. Yeah. No, that uh, it reminds me of like one of the film series I've been working on and that I'm even kind of embracing as as I go through this auto documentary series is this uh, series called Mixed in America. And it's about uh, the personal stories of biracial people in America and it kind of was born out of a conversation with with my daughter, who's she's you know she's half black, half white. Uh, she's she's technically my adopted daughter. Um, her mom was a single mom before we got married, but she's so much like me, and it's kind of cool when we go out over a scene together as a family. It, the natural assumption is she's that she's my biological daughter. But we were having this conversation, and it was all around uh, Chris Rock's movie Good Hair. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with the African-American community, Jeffrey, but like in the black community, there's this thing about good hair and bad hair. Mm-hmm. And so Chris Rock did this really funny documentary about it. And so I was talking to my daughter about it and and how some of the things that he was saying, like if she related to them about, you know, you know, sort of like the black community and how her relation to it. And so out of that conversation came this film series I've been working on and the 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 interview I had with her where I asked her all these questions, I I realized that a lot of the things she was saying, even though they kind of related to her as a biracial person, you know, this idea of wanting to fit in or this idea of wanting to, or sometimes feeling like she didn't connect with black people and she didn't connect with white people, kind of like being stuck in the middle, that even though it was specifically about her being biracial, it it was, I had this cool realization that you know, I think a lot of us feel that way about other things, like this whole idea of not fitting in or or wanting to be cool or wanting to feel like you don't really connect to anything. Um, and just what you just said about, you know, every specific is general, I think really speaks to that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that's the case. Yeah, I think that the things that are as personal as they can be, we we react to them and we we find our way in and we find the way that that relates to ourselves and right. i and and it's so much more powerful and so much more interesting i think yeah um 
you had mentioned on the show uh, uh, how you're a fan of P.T. Anderson uh, and Spielberg. At least I've heard you mention them. I, I've heard mm-hmm. you bring them up. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at different filmmakers and kind of commenting on 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 their style. What is it like? What is it about those two filmmakers that appeals to you? Like, what is it that you like about? Let's start with Spielberg. I mean, obviously he he appeals to a lot of people, but is there something specific about like what he does and how he does it that talks to you? Well, he's certainly the visual language of my childhood, right? And and the the soaring idealism of of the eighties and the, which is the decade that I think defined me the most as a, as a, you know, as a kid and, and that, that feeling of, um, of hope and excitement and youthful exuberance. I mean, so many of his movies come from this perspective of a child or, mm-hmm. or even, uh, you know, that, that where anything is possible and the, and that child sense of adventure, um, you know the, his iconic films. I, you know, I was too young for Jaws when it came out. I came to appreciate it later, but certainly E.T., Close Encounters, um, Indiana Jones, the, those films. The visual language of them. I think Indiana Jones is about as close to perfect as, or the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I should say. Yeah, um, is about as close to perfect as you can make an action film, and you know that that visual language and that that sense of adventure and that the way the camera interacts with the characters, the way characters walk into their close up, the way all of that stuff, that, that Spielbergian um, sort of soaring, hopeful feeling of, of, of joy and, and uh, reverence and, and majestic sort of cinema, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that to me really captured my imagination and inspired me to want to to create things like that. Yeah, uh, I find it interesting that a recurring theme that you see in Spielberg films is fatherhood. Um, yes, and the relation to fatherhood, and just knowing your whole dad jokes thing, and then what you said about your dad earlier, is that something that has connected with you with Spielberg films? I wonder. A hundred percent. I mean, a lot yeah. of a lot of the the uh, thesis not thesis but the themes of of spielberg are that uh divorce and and loss of 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 childhood innocence and parental supervision and all that stuff i didn't really go through that i had a very stable strong family and i'm very um grateful for that but fathers and sons and the and the feeling of fatherhood and the responsibility of fatherhood is something that has always resonated with me as uh, both a son and uh, a person who expects to be a father at some point, right? So the idea, the idea of that that role and and the responsibility of that role and doing it right and feeling that my own father set a really high bar um, for that and set a great example for me as a man uh, and and just sort of manhood in general and, mm-hmm. and what that means uh, to to pass on generationally, I find to be very compelling. Uh, in 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 art, what would you say is sort of like the seminal Spielberg fatherhood movie? Oh man, there are so many. Uh, I boy, you put me on the spot. <laughs> um, the seminal. F- I mean, I I love. Um, this is a kind of a cheesy example, I suppose, but I love you know Last Crusade and the in the right. the interplay between Indy and his dad and like bringing a father into that mix is such an interesting 
concept and the way that it's, you know, I, I remember going to see that movie with my dad and sitting next to my dad and seeing Indy with his dad. Like, there's something really powerful about that. Um, I, I don't know if that's the best example, but it, no, it's I think it's one a great that, one. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that's an obvious one too when you think about it. I mean, it's specifically about like this father son relationship and and what it means and you know i i mean i grew up with primarily a single mom and uh, my she got remarried again when i was like 11 but for my formative years you know she was a single mom and 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 i don't don't know that i mean i don't think the idea or the themes of fatherhood in spielberg's movies really even became aware to me until maybe even earlier this year but, you know, it does make you wonder, okay, I wonder if it had the effect on me that it had because I was, a, you know, the son of a single mom for so long. Um, and I think that's one of the powerful things about film. Like, sometimes you realize years later the effect that, that a film has had on you mm-hmm. when you were a kid that you didn't realize it had a kid. But it wasn't until 20, 30 years later that you realize, oh, my gosh. You know, if I use the inside-out language, uh, you know, the recent Pixar film uh, – you have a core memory from a film you saw that you don't realize till later right. kind of shaped your personality. A hundred percent. Yeah. How amazing was that film, by the way, just as a sign out? I love it. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I really do. yeah. I, it might be the best Pixar film ever. I, I, I definitely rank as my favorite Pixar film and I've started calling it one of my favorite films, which isn't something I normally do. Like I said earlier, but it, it, it just, what I loved about it is that it transcends like filmmaking like it's yeah. it created this new language yeah. i was for how we talk about emotions and feelings mm-hmm. i was talking to my my a brother a few weeks ago about it and he was using the language of the film to kind of talk about some of the things that he dealt with as a kid growing up and just how giving us that that language to kind of talk about what we're dealing with and even as a dad for myself, it changed immediately the way I was looking at my son when we walked out the theater. And I started thinking about, okay, what kind of memories am I creating for him? Like I was thinking about his little control room, right? And, yeah. It's and, so wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It's so powerful. Uh, that's one of the things I love about about this, about the, about the filmmaking in general. Um, and Yeah. I, you know, I, I, um, I tweeted this when I, when I got out of that movie too. And, and, and part of the reason that I – was so emotional watching it throughout is is because I kept imagining parents who maybe didn't have a way to communicate with their kids or had kids that were acting out in certain ways and mm-hmm, right. all of a sudden had tools as a result of this movie to ask questions, say, you know, to say who's 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 in control right now, which which emotion is at the controls. And to be able to just quantify it that way and and verbalize it that way and be able to give you a like a a simple movie that you go that's a piece of summer entertainment to be able to hand a tool set to a a parent like that i just found it to be so moving yeah yeah and it's and again it's like one of the things that movies do so well and one of the things that's really amazing about the story you know hearing pete doctor being interviewed about it was that the like 180 degree turn i'm sure you've heard this that they made in the story development like originally mm-hmm. they were going down the path of having fear and joy mm-hmm. be the ones that go out into the mine and get out of the control room mm-hmm. and they were like they i guess they had a significant amount of development in that direction and then at some point they decided you know what this is not the right story 
it needs to be like you know joy and sadness right. and having the, the i guess the bravery if you will to throw everything they had done to go in that direction i just thought yeah. that was like awesome to hear that it, it yeah it really reinforces that the the mythos of of pixar as far as uh their commitment to story and their willingness to to get things right it's so inspiring um but yeah i mean the central message of that movie that it isn't about just pushing sadness down right it's about embracing sadness and working sadness and joy go hand in hand it's just it's absolutely beautiful yeah um so the other filmmaker was pt anderson and Mm. uh what is it about him that you like as a filmmaker uh, and I think you were talking about – I heard you mention Magnolia being one of your – Yeah, um, Magnolia, um, uh, Boogie Nights, uh, um, There Will Be Blood. Uh, these are giant pillars in as far as uh, the, the cinematic touchstones for me that, that really mean a lot. Um, I just find him to be so – touched by genius i mean it is they're sweeping they're huge they're big they're they're about the things that are most important um i am so drawn to you know i love uh escapist fantasy i love i love genre filmmaking but i am even more drawn to things that have something to say about the human condition and that make me feel closer to my fellow man and and you know more grounded and have a prism through which to look at my own experience and and those movies they are the language of those movies i I, you know i love i love language i love the uh, the english language i i fell in love with it in college i fell in love with shakespeare and i i love words as as evidence for my my dad joke obsession um but you know he, he writes incredible dialogue he films things beautifully and he tackles these gigantic moving tales of of utter humanity that are so powerful and and really unlike anything that any other filmmaker is doing you know his his movies aren't all like one another and they're all so him they're so unique and so personal it seems what do you mean they're you said they're they're unlike one another but so like him like what do you mean by that it feels like no other filmmaker could make them. Uh, that, but but you know you look at uh, Punch Drunk Love and you look at There Will Be Blood and there's there, it looks like how could the same person make both those movies? Um, but th- he does, and they're and they're but they're both so powerfully different from anything any other filmmaker is doing. You feel like only he could make those movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and funnily enough. Fatherhood is a theme that comes up a lot in his films as well. I mean, if you think about obviously sure. Tom Cruise and Magnolia and his, you know, Oscar nominated scene and There Will Be Blood that's at the center yeah. of it and Yes. The Master for sure. If you think about, you know, oh, the Master's uh, amazing. Yeah. You know, the, the the father figure there and and you could probably even say Boogie Nights to some extent, you know, the um the uh the main character there played by what's his name? The well, Burt Reynolds, uh, Burt Reynolds is sort of the f- father figure, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how it, it just kind of makes me wonder if, like, these kind of filmmakers, are, are they pulling from something? Because, like you said, you know, filmmakers, particularly like P.T. Anderson, are so much of themselves in their film. Like, you can't picture anyone else making those films, even though they're so different from one another. You mm-hmm. can't help but wonder if, like, their personal stories affected that, right? 
Well, I've heard definitely that Magnolia came from, um, I think it's from the death of his father hmm. and he was writing it during that period. And, and, um, so I think that that is, that is all wound up in there and very intensely personal. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what art does, right? Great art helps us figure out how we feel about things and helps us work through things and, and gives us uh, a lens through which to see the world and sort of feel closer to the general human experience. I think it's, that's what it does at its best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking this time. Sure. I, I wanted to, you know, since we have so many filmmakers um, who are, who are listening to this or who will be listening to this. Uh, I love your, even though I don't do this at all, but like, I love your passion for being unsullied. Uh, explain what that is for the listeners and why that's important to you well i sort of co-opted a a phrase from um, game of thrones uh, game of thrones right but i i liked it and and um basically the idea is that i've i've gotten to the point where i really feel like uh marketing for movies in particular has gone way over the line as to showing me way too much of the movie before i see it so i made the bold and rather uh (laughs) rather difficult uh logistically <laughs> decision <laughs> to uh to try to avoid all trailers all marketing to try to go into movies as blank slate as possible knowing as little as i can about what actually happens in them and see how that affects my enjoyment um and i i have found having done that that while it is very annoying to the people in my life and very difficult for me to run out of the room when a television commercial comes on or <laughs> plug my ears before a, a movie when the trailers are, are happening, um, that I actually end up enjoying the twists and turns and surprises in the context of the film so much more that it's it's worth it. And I've sort of been outspoken about it. And a lot of people on Twitter at least have uh, been supportive and are, are trying it themselves. It's certainly not for... Pardon me. Excuse me. Not uh, excuse me. Um, it is certainly not for everybody, but right. it is. Uh, it's something that I have found to be um, positive in my life. Yeah. Well, I think it's, and I know you've had this discussion on this last film cast and with Peter Serretta, the, and with your other co-host there. Uh, but the one of the topics that came up was this idea of missing out on the conversation. And mm-hmm. like, there are some movies you could care less. There isn't. There isn't obviously a lot of conversation around it. But when you think about something like a Star Wars, like the new Star Wars that's coming out this year, where you have leading up to it literally a year or more long of blog posts and conversations and comments and commentary and people expressing feelings about, you know, the prequels and and this larger conversation about this this movie that, you know, probably nine times out of ten – is like the movie that people say, and even you brought it up earlier in this interview, was the movie that made them want to become a filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not participating in that and not being able to take part in that, especially for someone like yourself who is so eloquent and so learned, if you will, you know, to, to, to deprive us, Jeff, of your <laughs> insight. Before going, yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Especially, you know, seriously, especially going back to your your comment about okay, it's not about the Metacritic score. I remember hearing you on this week, as of this taping, this week's episode of Slash Film Cast. You guys talked about, 
you know, sort of like this um, group mind think or like Metacritic and Rotten Tomato type scoring. And you were mentioning earlier about like you're not about putting a number score in a movie. It's about, okay, what's this person I know and trust? What's their take on this? And so, you know, this idea of, you know, having that be such an important part of the conversation, you know, what do you, what what has been I guess your response to that to that you're missing out not not just missing out but not even not being able to partake and in input into this greater conversation of films and filmmaking and and helping steer people in the right direction if you will. Well, you know, Star Wars has been uh, a very difficult <laughs> difficult uh, litmus test for for the unsullied lifestyle. Right. It it has been very difficult for me mostly because there is so much discussion of it and so it, on all sides people referencing the trailer and referencing and speculating and all this stuff. There is a part of me, you know, I went through that the first time around when episode 1 was coming out and thoroughly enjoyed it and I you know, I was I was as knee deep in all that and, and buying tickets to the the movie that just had the trailer on it and walking out of the movie after the trailer was over all that stuff that we were all doing in the in the night in 1999 but you know and and so it's been very difficult it's been very difficult um to not be a part of that discussion but i i really do feel like i'm going to enjoy the movie more not i wish i didn't know that uh, the original cast was in it. I would love that to be a surprise. I think mm-hmm. that'd be such a special surprise. Um, you know, as far as not being part of a discussion, I, I think that the discussion that I'm part of is the more important one, in my opinion, which hmm. is having seen the films, talking about them uh, from start to finish, right? Knowing knowing the completed piece of work that is that is really the most important thing. Like I don't really care how good or bad a trailer is. I I do care how good or bad the movie is. The movie is what is what's going to last and stand the test of time and be important. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just, um, we had a good example last week on the slash film cast of the, uh, Terminator Genesis oh, review, yeah. which, you know, I, I'm not going to argue that's a great movie, but I certainly enjoyed it a heck of a lot more than my colleagues on the show, and I would probably point out that the reason that that's the case is because I didn't know the twists that were coming. Right. And the trailer revealed them. Now, that's an extreme example of a trailer that revealed some really, yeah. really big things. But I think overall, when, my favorite experience uh, of watching a movie is when I walk in and all I know is the title. That happened with uh, one of my favorite movies of this year, It Follows. I had no idea what It Follows was about. I had just heard somebody say, it's great. We got to go see it. Mm-hmm. We, I went to see it. Follows. I didn't know it was a horror movie. I didn't know anything. I just went in and watched it, wow. and I was blown away. Um, so anyway, I just va- I think I just value surprise and the construction of a great movie experience yeah. more than that ramp up period. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And there's like a small part of me that like wants to experiment with it. You know, you you know, you, you kind of I've read these or I've seen these books where people try to live a certain way, you know, <laughs> like, you know, a year of living like Jesus or something like that. You know, right. a year like you have the same initials as JC, literally like living like Jeff Kanata. Right? <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> no, Unsullied, no, no, uh, no trailers. I don't know if I could do that for a year. 
because I sometimes I go in the Apple Store just to uh, just to go to the iTunes. Uh, I know this, is, you know, probably gonna be anathema to you, but just to go <laughs> to the iTunes trailer page and and see what's coming out because uh, oftentimes that's the best part of the movie. We, <laughs> like you yeah, said, well, that's the problem. I that think is the problem. Yeah. Um, for last word for like a piece of advice you would give to artists who want to learn how or to kind of like find their voice as an artist and, and, and develop a style? Like, what would you say to them? I would say make, you know, make the thing you want to make and keep making it over and over and over. And even if no one's looking at it or listening to it or watching it, uh, just keep, keep making it. it. It practice really does make perfect. And the more time you invest and, and, you know, if you're making something for the love of making that thing, it's always going to be better than making it to make a living. And uh, hopefully the living will come. But um, in the meantime, you know, just create. And I think the act of creation is, uh, is, is rewarding in and of itself, and it leads to getting better at making stuff. Yeah. No, that's great. Great advice. Uh, thanks a lot, Jeff. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. This was really fun. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I will definitely, you know, once the documentary goes up, I'll send you tweets and everything, and uh, I will continue listening. Thank you. All thanks right, man. That's really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, we'll connect again some other time. Sounds good. Have All a right. good day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye.